have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49 tonight. As we're in a section on Jesus' resurrection appearances, particularly to his disciples. And uh, we're seeing, as we have been now for a couple of weeks, Jesus call his disciples to be his witnesses. Some of them are going to be witnesses. Some are going to preach. Some won't preach necessarily. But they're called to serve. And Jesus equips them. He equips them for ministry. He doesn't leave them on their own to resort to their own devices. Uh, He knows they are weak. They are not strong. Uh, He knows that he has everything they need and can give that to him to serve. And so we want to hear this again from Luke chapter 24. And I'll be reading uh, verses 44 to 49. Let me invite you to give your, your attention to God's word. Then Jesus said to them, that is his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer And on the third day, rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power. From um, This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Lord, we do pray that you would teach us your word, correct us and rebuke us where need be, and equip us and train us uh, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus reaches people through people Jesus has reached. And so Jesus here is reaching his disciples with the good news of his resurrection, and then he's going to send them out with that same good news to tell others. There's a medical missionary who went to China. I've told this story to some of you before. It's been a number of years, but he was, uh, he was a medical missionary, and his first patient was a, bl- was a blind man with cataracts. He did this little procedure on him known in the medical community, and the man who was blind for years could now suddenly see. So the guy leaves, and he goes away, and the doctor continues his work, and about three months later, the guy comes back, and he's holding a rope with 48 blind people hanging onto it, all coming to see the doctor who makes blind people see. What happened, of course, is that this guy left and he spent months walking around saying, come and follow me and I will take you to the man who gave me my sight back. Would you want to serve Jesus like that medical missionary? Tonight we're looking at the Great Commission, Luke's version of it. Personal evangelism here, reaching 
the nations. And uh, before we get started into the text that calls us to be Jesus's witnesses, I just want to say, don't panic. I said evangelism, but I don't want you to fear and I don't want you to get up and walk away. This sermon is not designed to make you feel guilty at how little you do by way of evangelism. I'm as guilty as anyone, but that's not the point of this sermon. Nor is it to make you do something you hate and have no interest in doing. The gospel, we want to say at the outset, produces its own evangelism. Guilt doesn't do that. Oh, I could guilt trip you for a little while. I could, I could tell all of you, go share the gospel with somebody this week, because next week I'm going to ask you if you did. And some of you would never come back to Redeemer if I did that. Maybe rightfully so. Some of you would go out and do it, and you'd tell three people. You'd be interested in coming back to, to brag, you know. A little self-righteousness in all of us. Some of you would go do it and you would hate and despise doing, but you would do it because you would feel guilty coming back and having to say you didn't do it. We're not interested in any of that. A good model of evangelism doesn't get you to do something you hate doing and have no interest in. And so, as I like to say, a good model of evangelism is more like a swim party. Now, you have to like to swim and be around people for this to make any sense to you. But, but people hanging around, nobody wants to get in the pool initially. And then the guys dip their toes in, they pretend to scuffle a little bit. One of them leaps in or gets thrown in, and then pretty soon all the guys are in. And then one of the teenage guys, he goes to his sister or his girlfriend, and he begins to pull on her to try to throw her in the pool. She fights back, but he eventually wins. She gets thrown in the pool, and then all the other girls look around and go, well, I'm either going to get thrown in or I'm going to jump in. So then they all jump in, and then after a little bit, they're all having a great time. And more people show up. And what do they do? They look at the fun and the enjoyment and they get in the pool. They think to themselves, this looks great. I'd like to be a part of that. And so they get in. I think that's a better model of evangelism. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. Two weeks ago we looked at this. And it was like there was a wet blanket on them. They were all wet, but they weren't having a good time. Nobody was having fun, and I mean that in a serious, like, religious sense. (laughs) Nobody was enjoying the resurrection. They didn't believe in it. They didn't know about it. They, They were living and hiding out in a locked room out of despair that Jesus was dead. There were rumors from some that he had risen, but they hadn't seen him. They're afraid of what the government might do to them, the followers of this insurrectionist or whatever they crucified Jesus for. They're ashamed in their hearts to be associated with a crucified, which was the most humiliating way to die for a Jew, to be hung naked on a tree. And the most painful and cruel way the Romans could think of, they're ashamed to be associated with him thinking this is it. And they're guilty in their hearts for having abandoned him in his hour of need. Undoubtedly, it's true, misery loves company. That would have been a miserable company to be part of at that moment when Jesus shows up and he appears to them behind locked doors. And he's suddenly in their presence. If you go all the way back up to verse 36, the first words out of his mouth are, Peace to you. 
I make peace for you. I give my peace to you. I am your peace. I am not against you. I am for you. God is not going to take it out on you. God is for you. I forgive you. He gives them peace. And as we've said now for a couple of weeks, he gives them joy. Joy in the confidence of his resurrection. Their loving Savior who they thought is dead is alive. And they have joy. And they have hope because his resurrection is the promise of their resurrection. And they are assured of his steadfast love for them. Where they had been fickle and unsteadfast, where they had failed, Jesus had not towards God and towards them. And he comes to them and he says, I am yours and you are mine. And I am not against you, but I am for you. I am here to bless you, not to curse you. And I am not ashamed to be called your elder brother. He's doing all these things with them. And why, uh, why is he doing that? He's doing it to bless them with the benefits of his death and resurrection. With the very reason he came, that they might know that they belong to God. And God had given himself to them. He's building them up in love. And in doing so, he's equipping them, arming them with the peace and the forgiveness and the joy and the assurance that they need if they're going to go out and even want to invite others into peace and joy and assurance. And so here at Redeemer at the outset, before we dive deeply into our text, we just want to remind ourselves that what we aim to see here is the gospel creating a community of people who are glad to be part of it (laughs) because there is peace and joy and hope and assurance here found in the gospel. And if we really find that in the gospel and it is available in it, and we believe that outside the gospel, there is fear and guilt and shame and insecurity And despair, and if we care about people at all, we'll care about evangelism because we'll want them to know this Savior who does such gracious things for people. And so Jesus is calling them to be his disciples, calling them to ministry and equipping them for that ministry. And here in the passage, now we've already looked at the one I mentioned, we've already looked even last week at verses 44 and 45 and 46 in depth. So we're just going to scoot past it quickly, but I want to reiterate it. So what we're going to look at today are three things. Jesus, to equip them, gives them a few words about the scriptures in verses 44 and 45. He gives them a few words about the atonement in 46 and 47, and he gives them a few words about missions in 48 and 49. So he's got something to say, and he's going to equip them with Scriptures, the atonement, and missions. So in the first place, I want you to look at verses 44 and 45, where he gives a few words about Scripture and its reception. He says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So Jesus opened the word to them, And he opened their minds to understand the word. And so what he's reminding them is not only is he doing that for them, but that's what he's sending them to do for others in terms of opening the word, that which they can do. He's sending them to teach, to proclaim. 
Some will be preachers. They will all be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And we have, I want to say, nothing for people if we don't have the word of God, if we don't have the truth of God. And this was the authoritative resource for missions for them. How will we be certain people will receive it is the question. And he tells us in verse 45, uh, it's illumination. It's his opening of the mind to receive what was taught. Jesus had on numerous other occasions told them he was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to suffer. He was going to be crucified. He was going to die. He was going to rise from the dead. And when he told them that in Luke 9 and Luke 18, they didn't understand what he was talking about. They didn't get it. It says their minds were darkened. Now he tells them, what I did was I suffered for you and I rose from the dead. And he opened their minds to understand it, to believe it, and to see it from the Bible. Um, We've got to remember this. This is how people will receive what we teach and proclaim. Do you remember the story in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus is walking with his disciples and they're discussing what other people think about Jesus? And he says to them, well, you know, who do people say that I am? And some, and some of the disciples say, well, you know, people, some of them are saying, well, you're John the Baptist. Some are saying you're Elijah the prophet. Jesus turns the question around. He says to Peter, he says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds this way. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, he got that exactly right. Now, here's the deal. Jesus answered him and Jesus response to him was this. Blessed are you. Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. How did Simon get it right that Jesus was the Christ and the Son of the living God? Because the Father opened his mind and his heart to understand and believe these things. And so we want to pause and reflect that if you are a parent teaching your children If you are a Bible study leader, if you are a pastor or a missionary or have ambitions in that direction, if you are an educator and you're opening the word of God to people, how will they listen and really hear by God opening the mind? This is our great hope. Because if he doesn't lose this, we, uh, if he does this, we need not lose hope or give up though our initial efforts seem to fail. But this is really humbling, and this is really hopeful at the same time. It's humbling because I can't make anybody I'm talking to have an opened mind about the truth. But it's hopeful because God can and does. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and some of you may want to turn there, in 2 Corinthians 4, Verses 1 to 6 says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now pause there and reflect. You don't tell people you don't lose heart unless losing heart is a temptation. And undoubtedly, Paul felt that temptation. I know countless ministers, including the one standing here, who easily lose heart. But we don't despair forever. Rather, he goes on and he says, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
So he's saying, look, we might be tempted to lose heart. People aren't getting it. Some people, because they're tempted to lose heart, are going to start twisting and manipulating. They're going to start playing on your emotions. They're going to start doing all kinds of things to get you to believe that are, are underhanded. And Paul says, we don't do that, but rather, he says, by an open statement of the truth, we simply commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We just speak plainly and openly. Nothing secret here, nothing hidden here. We just speak plainly and openly the word of God. And he goes on, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says, my great hope is this. God, who at Genesis 1 said, be light, and there was light. The God who could speak light into darkness, that same God, by his word, speaks light into our hearts. The light, what light? The light of the knowledge. The knowledge of what? Of the glory of God where in the face of Jesus Christ. This is our great hope to persist in ministry. This is also, by the way, one of the reasons every week at Redeemer, we open God's word and we read it and we pray, Lord, teach us. Lord, help us. Lord, show us. Lord, enlighten the eyes of our minds and the knowledge of Christ. Because it's God's work to do that and God does that work and that's our great hope for the reception of his instruction. And so that's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus is equipping them in this way, but he's going to send them out. He's going to send them out to do something they can't do, but with the confidence that God can. Now, the second thing is this. Verses 46 and 47, he has a few words about the atonement or the central message of the Bible, the central message of the gospel. And here it's in summary and very briefly put, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And he'll go on. We'll look at that in a moment. Now you know that Jesus did many other things. He was a worker of miracles. You know that he was a teacher of the faith. You know that he was a compassionate man who put his arm around lepers and outcasts and prostitutes and people nobody would touch. He did all kinds of things, of course. But he principally came to suffer and rise. This is what in Christian theology is called the atonement. It is Christ suffering for our sins and rising from the dead for our justification before God. Because a sacrifice had to be made for sins, and so he made it. Punishment had to be exacted for sin, and he endured it. His resurrection completed that sacrifice, was the public demonstration that God had accepted his work as satisfaction for our sins, and that our sins had been paid for, and yet 
Jesus himself in himself was righteous and didn't deserve the grave. So he, grave. So he went there for us and then he was raised likewise for us. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, now you tell people about my humiliation and you tell people about my exaltation. You tell them I suffered for them. You tell them I triumphed over the grave for them. And I am alive forevermore for them. And so in them they can have forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, and everlasting life in paradise with me. Don't make the message, Jesus is saying, about something else. Christianity is not about how you can have your best life now. My pastor, my old pastor used to say a version of that. In thinking about the end times, some people think, oddly, it's a very small minority of people and it's a very strange view, that all of the book of Revelation basically has happened. That, that even the resurrection has happened, meaning for us. And of course, there, there were people back in the early Bible times who thought that. My, my old pastor would say, if that's true, put a gun to my head. Because you know this isn't all there is. And certainly this is not your best life now. And God didn't promise you your best life now in the here and now. Nor did he promise you health and wealth here and now. You are a co-heir with Jesus. You will one day with him rule the universe. But here you might suffer for his name's sake that then you might share in his glory. The Bible isn't about the 10 things the Bible says about how to be happier or the 10 things about how to have a better, more romantic marriage, one for the ages, or why a Garden of Eden diet or a Prophet Daniel diet is God's diet for you. Or whatever crazy new marketed thing the bookstore is throwing in your face to say, well, this is really what it's all about and this is really going to help you. And Jesus says what it's all about and what's really going to help you is my humiliation and my exaltation for you. So keep the main thing the main thing because this is, after all, our greatest need. The great Thomas Boston, a Scottish pastor, once said, if people knew my heart, I wouldn't have four friends left in Scotland. What was he doing? He was simply being honest about the sins of his own heart and the ugliness that exists in our own hearts and the crazy, perverted, horrible, mean, nasty ungodly, filthy things that run through our hearts and minds that we don't want anybody else to know about, of course. And all these sins are forgiven in Jesus for those who look to him. You can be forgiven of the worst and the vilest through the death and resurrection of Jesus for you. And so he goes on to say, and so therefore repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, verse 47. Okay? The Puritan writer, John Flavel, wrote a famous dialogue between the Father and the Son regarding us sinners and the great price that would be required to obtain our redemption. And so this is imaginative. 
as a conversation between the father and the son. But here's what he wrote. Here you may suppose the father to say, when driving his bargain with Christ for you, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that are utterly undone themselves. And now they lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them, or it will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for them? And Christ responds, Oh, my Father, such is my love for them and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring me all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all to me, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand you may require the payment. I will rather choose to suffer the wrath they deserve than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. And the Father responds, but my son, if you undertake for them... You must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son says, I am content. Father, let it be so. Charge it to my account. Bring it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove to be a kind of undoing of me, Though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. You see what Jesus has done for you? What do you need to benefit by this work of Christ? How does what he accomplished in the atonement become yours in your reality through faith and repentance? Preach repentance and faith in him in light of his humiliation and exaltation. Preach repentance and faith and forgiveness of sins in his name is what the text says. Meaning that these things are the result and the fruit of what Jesus did in our place. Dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Theologians refer to this as the accomplishment of redemption. That's the atonement. And the application of redemption, that's through repentance and faith. The cross and the resurrection are the accomplishment. Repentance and forgiveness are the application of it. And so what do we do? What does it mean? You turn away from false gods and false saviors and you turn to Christ, the true God and true Savior. And in doing so, don't imagine that your response to him is the work that saves you. His work is the work that saves you. Faith is depending upon him to save you. You know, a couple of months ago, some of you were around. I think students might have been gone. It was early January. Maybe it was even late December. We had that massive, unending rainstorm. And uh, Sager Creek was swollen. There was flooding downtown in various places. I drove around town to see if the flooding had come all the way up to the offices or not. Uh, and And it hadn't. So things were okay. But as you uh, went over the bridges, uh, just marveled at how, how swollen the creek was. In fact, that, that new, newer single-lane bridge down here, pointing in some direction. I don't even know which way I'm oriented. 
that, that single lane bridge, the, the, the beautiful stonework, and then there's, um, I don't know if they're arches or full holes, but it's designed to let all the water rush through and underneath the bridge when it rises that high. Well, the water was all the way up uh, over or nearly right at the lip, of, and it was shoving and pushing. You could just see it was a rampage. And, and I thought, this bridge isn't going to make it. It's not going to handle it. But of course, the designers know more than me, and so it was just fine. It was okay. My believing, whether it would work or not, didn't matter at all. What mattered was the bridge strong and well-designed or not. And so it is with us. Believing in Christ is not putting your trust in your faith to save you or your belief to rescue you but putting your trust in Christ to save you. Your faith isn't strong enough. Faith in your faith is just trusting in your weak self. Saying, I don't have enough faith in Jesus is really saying, I'm looking to myself to have enough faith to be saved, which is looking to yourself to be your own savior. But put your faith in a better object, a person who is strong and mighty, who suffered and rose, and you can have faith as small as a mustard seed, as light and little, and you shall be saved. Neither can your faith nor your repentance save you. Jesus saves, pardons the free gift, but in light of what he has done, the proper response is to repent and believe. And so thus it is written, that this Christ should suffer and die and rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And so he moves from a, a few words about the scripture to a few words about the atonement, and finally to a few words about missions and the spirit of God at verses 47 and following. Preach repentance and forgiveness in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So this is Luke's version of the very, and much more widely known as the famous Matthew version of the Great Commission. Go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, teaching them. This is the Luke synopsis of it. This is uh, the Great Commission. And where were they to begin their preaching? Where was missions to begin? In Jerusalem. Now think of that. Jerusalem was the wickedest city on earth when our Lord left the world. It was a city Jesus condemned for stoning the prophets, killing those whom God had sent it to repent. Nineveh didn't kill Jonah. It was a city full of pride, unbelief, self-righteousness, a desperate hardness of heart. It was a city which had just crowned all its transgressions by crucifying the Lord of glory. And Jesus says, I want you to tell those people in that city, there is pardon to be found in me. No one, therefore, is to be considered too bad, too far gone in our eyes to hear the good news of the gospel. There is no degree of spiritual disease beyond the reach of this great physician because he is mighty in compassion 
And so he says, you start with those people who killed me and you tell them. But also this gospel is going to go where to all nations. Isaiah had predicted this in chapter 49. God said, it's too light a thing, too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's the prophet giving us God's word about God's servant who is Jesus. It would be too light a thing for this just to be for the Jews in Israel, in Jerusalem. It's a message worthy of every tribe and tongue and language and people. And so we should support this work. Now, not everybody among us is going to be a missionary to a foreign land. Not everybody's called to be, even be a full-time Christian worker. It's not the highest calling. It's one among many calling. It's very legitimate to be called a pastor or a teacher or a missionary. And some of you may be called to go. And you should go if God calls you. But it's also a great thing to be called a school teacher and a banker and a nurse and a plumber and a homemaker and a college student. And you should do those things if that is what God has called to you in this moment. God, in fact, may call some of you overseas because the nations need to hear. But I will say in a nation which is 75 to 80% unchurched, meaning 75 to 80% of all Americans have abandoned the church and Christianity if they ever embraced it or have never embraced it in the first place or even said that they have. America is... Uh, the fourth, uh, the fourth uh, largest unreached nation in the world for the gospel because of the size of our population as a percentage, the fourth largest unreached nation in the world. It's the largest English-speaking unreached nation in the world. And so some of you may be called to go elsewhere to preach the gospel. Some of you may be called here to preach the gospel. All of us are called to be witnesses, not eyewitnesses. We didn't see him, but witnesses where we are and what we're doing of Jesus and his glory. Now, what does it take to fulfill that task? Jesus has not left you on your own to go out and do, just as he did not for the disciples. He said, but wait. I want you to wait. I'm sending the, promised, the promise of the Father upon you, and you should stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. In other words, Jesus knows we can't do this on our own, that we are weak and that the gospel won't advance by human power or creativity or ingenuity or cleverness or zeal, but the gospel will be advanced by the spirit of God working in and through God's people, proclaiming God's word about God's son. And so what we need is power by the spirit. We need the promise of the father. And as you remember, perhaps, These disciples did wait, and they were in Jerusalem when in Acts chapter 1 and then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them and then poured out at Pentecost upon all who had gathered in the city, an innumerable number. And the Spirit was poured out with power, and then they were scattered and sent to the nations. Now, You and I have received that same spirit if we are in Christ. 
the coming of the Spirit upon you was not so dramatic. I profoundly suspect none of you had a tongue of fire visible to the human high settle upon your head as the early disciples did, which was an outward symbolic form visible to all to make clear that the true reality of the coming of the promise of the Father, the sending of the Spirit by the Son had indeed come upon all flesh, male and female, Jew and Gentile, so that the gospel might go to the ends of the earth. Each of us has that same spirit, each who believes in Christ. All Christians have this same spirit. And by the spirit, we can have boldness. And by the spirit, we can have courage. That boldness and courage we don't have in ourselves. When we are weak and timid and fearful, we can say, Lord, help me. Give me courage to speak up for you. Give me wisdom to do so well. Give me grace to be truthful and patient and kind and loving. But help me talk on your behalf and open doors of opportunity and give me the eyes to see those doors, to walk through them. So that what Jesus calls us to do, he equips his people for. He never leaves us to ourselves. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, we can be, in light of the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension into heaven, and his sending the Spirit, his Spirit upon us, we can be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would use us for your glory. You would strengthen us in weakness by your Spirit. Help us to know the glory of Christ, to enjoy the benefits of Christ, and so have a heart to love our neighbor and speak. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.